honestly, yeah, from the very beginning, it was, could these kids do more than survive? So if they survived the war and received the heart healing that they needed, could they really become peace leaders? Like, could we then teach them conflict resolution skills and leadership skills so that they could change the trajectory of their nation and be peace leaders? So that was part of it from the very beginning, but I didn't have a five-year plan. I didn't have any money. I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew that something had to be done. And I came back and just felt like I just wanted to stand on top of the biggest house and say, everyone stop what you're doing right now and listen to me. Kids are being abducted and they're dying and something has to be done. Hello, everyone. I am Harris III, and we are back. Thank you so much for sticking through the summer with us as we took a break from our normal programming. I hope you guys enjoyed the talks from Story 2016 we've been posting over the last couple of months. But we are back this week with another interview with someone I have wanted to have on the podcast for a long time now, and it is going to be incredible. It's an interview that couldn't be more in line with everything we value here at Story. We're constantly hard at work to keep you guys, the creative community of storytellers, inspired to do your best, most meaningful work. And this interview couldn't be any better at that. You're going to love it. And it's hard to believe that Story 2017, our flagship event, is right around the corner. We're officially less than a month away. If you haven't registered yet or you need more info, check out story2017.com. The cost of registration goes up by $100 on September 1st. There's also a discount code for $100 off still available. So if you register before the price goes up and use the code WEARSTORY, WEARSTORY with no spaces, that's a total of $200 of savings. So do not miss that. I cannot express how incredible this year's conference is going to be. We are attempting to do some things that I have never seen any conference ever attempt before. So fingers crossed, it's a risk. It is a creative risk, but I think it's gonna be absolutely unforgettable. Hope to see you there. In the meantime, I'm so glad that you are here joining us for this show. Enjoy this great episode of The Story Podcast. There are things meant for you that are currently beyond your imagination. The only way to become a better storyteller is by telling more stories. Your greatest work may not be seen by millions of people. Keep making anyway. To be a writer, we have to sit down and we have to do the work and we don't get up until it's finished. The only hope we have are the stories we tell. Stories not bound by what is possible. We are proud to be storytellers. This week, Kellen Robison and I sat down with Bethany Haley Williams. I'm a psychologist and I'm the founder and executive director of Exile International. We work with rescued child soldiers and war-affected children, providing art therapy and holistic rehabilitation in Uganda and Congo. Bethany is one of the most amazing people I've ever met, for real. 
with a PhD in counseling psychology and master's in license in clinical social work, she is a leader in the field of war-affected child rehabilitation. In addition to her work through Exile International, the organization she founded, she also works with organizations like the United Nations. She is an activist committed to amplifying the voices and stories of war-affected youth. With 20 years of experience working with emotionally wounded and grieving children, her passion rises from finding beauty in brokenness, beginning with her own. In her book, The Color of Grace, she tells the story of how her own recovery from trauma opened the door to travel into war zones, learning from young hearts most wounded by war. But how did she recover from trauma specifically? And how is she helping others do the same? How did it all begin? And what can we learn from her as artists and storytellers? Quite a bit. Let's jump in. You know, someone actually asked me that question. They just worded it. It was this older gentleman, and he said, how do you get from Kentucky to a war zone in Africa? And I said, will you fly? (laughs) You fly on an airplane. That's how you get there. Um... But I think, well, you know, ever since I was a little girl, Africa has been just the heartbeat, a heartbeat inside of me. So when I was little, I would watch, say, the children commercials and um, just loved um, international work and loved Africa. And so I knew that was really part of my story. I just didn't know at what point it would kind of show itself. Um, So when I was in college, my degree was in social work. And went on to get my master's and then eventually my doctorate and did international work with short-term mission trips along the way. Um, And then I went to Congo for the first time in 2008, and I was part of a a team of about 10 women, and we were leading a trauma care workshop. And um, I'd been probably three times to Africa at that point, um, but I'd never been to anywhere like Congo before. I felt like that a curtain, when when I got back, I explained it like, um, a curtain was kind of um, drawn back and I was shown a level of hopelessness and desperateness that I'd never seen before. And I didn't really have a place to put that in my head. Um, and that's when I met child soldiers for the first time. I'd heard about child soldiers, but when you meet a child soldier um, and you hear their story, it's totally different. And the first time I met children who'd been soldiers, they were in an orphanage that we visited on that trip to Congo and they pulled me aside before we got in the van to leave. Um, and in broken English, asked me to be their mother. And so they actually asked me to be their father because they didn't, because they were trying to say mother, but they, but they were saying father thinking they were saying mother. Um, and just met kids who couldn't speak because of what they'd seen, watching their parents die and running from rebels. And so, yeah, I came back um, and really within two weeks, started exile just fe- it was almost like this passion that I couldn't stop like I could not do it and at that point I was in full-time private practice work had gone through my own journey of trauma and divorce and finally semi getting my head above water and then went head first into starting a nonprofit. and of course my family and people around me were like wait what what are you what did you say you're doing so kind of, yeah, just head first dove in. At the time when you started Exile, did you know what the mission was going to be and what it was going to look like at all? Um, 
I knew trauma care was a part of that. Okay. And really the vision, honestly, yeah, from the very beginning, it was, could these kids do more than survive? So if they survived the war and received the heart healing that they needed, could they really become peace leaders? Like, could we then teach them conflict resolution skills and leadership skills so that they could change the trajectory of their nation and be peace leaders? So that was part of it from the very beginning, but I didn't have a five-year plan. I didn't have any money. I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew that something had to be done. And I came back and just felt like I just wanted to stand on top of the biggest house and say, everyone stop what you're doing right now and listen to me. Kids are being abducted and they're dying and something has to be done. And I think part of that was a lot for some people. They were like, whoa, I just want to watch the Titans, you know? (laughs) And I was like, okay, that's great. But this is really what's going on and we need to do something about it. So it wasn't really a plan. It was just like, what do I do? We have to, we have to do something. And doing nothing wasn't an option. So something had to be done. I think it's an experience a lot of us share when we come back from a trip like that. You know, we go to, that's the whole idea of culture shock, I guess, right? Is you experience this thing and you come back and you're like, why are all you people just going about your business? Yeah. Things are not normal in other places. The place I just came from is so different and you're completely unaware of it all. Yeah. And it's shocking. And the phrase you used, you said that you couldn't not do it. It's actually something I hear repeatedly when I sit down and interview people who are doing creative work. And it's starting to intrigue me because I, I would love to try to figure out what that is. And I'm excited because I'm talking to a psychologist. So maybe <laughs> maybe you can help us figure this out. Uh, but first of all, let's let's go back and figure out how you became a psychologist. Were were you already doing trauma work? Is that why you knew you wanted to do something with trauma work in that moment, or is that uh, was that a new part of being a psychologist? Yeah. So this is what is so interesting. I've always worked. Well, I haven't always worked with children, but children has always been my passion. But I never did trauma work because I I didn't have training in it, and it just wasn't anything I was really interested in. But having gone through trauma. And having PTSD, um, a lot of what I did when I wrote the first art therapy workshop that we started to use wasn't from, I read this book and this is what it said. It was from what helped you when you were in the middle of a flashback and what helped you whenever you were in this place of deep depression and becoming suicidal, what helped you? And I, I, of course had knowledge of being, having my PhD and having my license as a clinical social worker. So of course I used a lot of that. Um, But trauma became, was on my radar when I really experienced it. And then I sat with kids who were in really such, such deep, deep trauma. So how did you discover art therapy? Yeah. So I went through a treatment program myself um, with the PTSD that I had in the, in the depression. And we used a lot of art therapy in the, um, in the treatment program. And then I'd used art therapy techniques in my practice with kids for years. But what I wanted to do when I founded Exile was do research on what's working and what's not working. So I went to Northern Uganda because with the LRA, there'd been over 60,000 children abducted and they had a really great rehabilitation center there, the World Vision Rehabilitation Center. And so I went there and I only wanted to meet with Africans. I didn't want to meet with Westerners, but I wanted to know what's working, what's helping your children. And I started to learn about art and dance and drama and music and spoken word and how that 
really was bringing the kids back to life again. Because if, if you've been to Africa, you, you, you've heard villagers sing or you've seen dances or you've seen dramas. And um, so all of that, I thought, you know, we could use this for the kids. And it's not anything that I created. It was already being done in other, in other places. So that started to become part of the curriculum that we used. And now you just see it help the kids totally come back to life again, because they've missed so much of their childhood in captivity. Um, and, and clinically it's interesting because art therapy and, and art slash expression, um, expressive therapy kind of goes all in the same, um, category, but it actually uses a different part of your brain. So if I'm going to sit down and I'm going to talk to you, I'm using my, the left side of my brain because I'm using words. Well, kids, their language sometimes hasn't even developed to a certain point. And so art and dance and drama and music helps them to use this other part of their brain to tell about their story of trauma or to draw about their story of trauma or to act out their story of trauma. And they don't actually have to use their words. And in a weird way, it's fun. And, and our kids will do dramas of being abducted and being forced to use a gun and being uh, kidnapped into the bush, being rescued, having to kill someone, and what's that? what that's like. But when they do drama together, they're doing a drama together, sometimes they smile and they laugh about it because it's like our war buddies and we're here together telling you about our story and what it was like in captivity. Um, and it's totally different than if I would sit down with them and I would say, tell me about your time in captivity. So it's really, it's really fascinating. I don't know about you, but listening to Bethany talk about how art therapy is impacting the lives of child soldiers and helping with their rehabilitation is totally mind-blowing. It just sounds so freaking cool. And this is what I love about art. I love that art plays such a significant role in the world. I love that it makes people think about things that matter. I love that it helps people feel things that they need to feel. But how cool is it that art is quite literally changing the stories of kids who had no hope? I mean, at this point, early on in an interview, my head was already spinning with ideas. I have so many more questions for Bethany and her work through Exile and all the perspective that she has gained while doing that work. But first, I had to learn more about this process of healing through art therapy. So one of the techniques we use, um, it's called the handkerchief technique, but we, we use two handkerchiefs and we give the kids one to draw their heartaches and one to draw their hopes and their dreams because we never want to leave them in their heartache. And we use handkerchiefs because handkerchiefs capture our tears and we want them to know that their tears are precious. And um, so they draw, you know, their heartache drawings, of course, you can imagine. They're dead bodies and guns and burning huts and blood, a lot of blood. And so being able to draw that, it get, like it's trapped in their head. And so they're able to get that out. And the same thing with their hopes and their dreams. Some of the kids had never really dreamed before. That was a foreign concept because they were just trying to survive. And so their dreams can be anything from, I want to help orphan children one day, or, um, you know, I want to be a teacher. I want to be a doctor. We've got one kid who wants to be a psychiatric doctor so she can help other children who've, who've been through trauma. But they use those drawings kind of as a storyboard, really, to be able to hold them up and, and say, this is my story. And they can point to different parts of it where again, if they were just to sit down with you, they would have a hard time telling you, but it's, it's a tangible piece that they can use to tell their story. That's incredible. 
really to other people outside of their world. You know, that war is just a part of their normal life. So they don't, a lot of them don't even know anybody knows about them or that people outside of their village or outside of their country, even they don't know that other people know there's a war going on there. So they need to hear that they are important and their story is important and that they are not what they have done and they are not what they were forced to do, that there's something beyond their pain. Have, have the kids that you've worked with, have they ever created in this way before? Has anyone ever put something in their hand and said, draw a picture? Maybe some of them. If they've gone through school, perhaps. We have had kids that um, have never drawn before. So some, I've been to remote villages where I would have to kind of teach them how. And Matthew, I love this. Matthew, my husband, we run the organization together. He's also he's a trauma counselor. But we were working at the UN one time and um, there were some recently rescued older boys. And so we were doing an art therapy project with them. And one of the boys who was older, he said, I don't know how to draw. I'm never drawn. I have no idea how to do this. And so Matthew Drew asked him to draw a square, kind of showed him how to do it. And then showed him how to draw a triangle and then asked him to put the triangle on top of the square. And he said, what does that look like? And the boy said, that's my hut. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. So yeah, some of them have never drawn before. And colors, just to have enough colors where you can draw all the colors that you're thinking of in your head is rare. That's amazing. Can you tell us a story of how you've seen art therapy transform a child's life and perspective? We did a project with Jeremy Cowart called the Poser Project and Jeremy went over with us and um, the kids drew their story on the handkerchiefs and then he took this Wacom screen and then they redrew the story on the Wacom screen. So it captured their drawing um, live basically. And I remember Dillis, we were working with Dillis and um, she was drawing. So her story basically is she was kidnapped by the LRA with her family um, and she was forced to watch as they killed her parents. And then her baby, baby sister um, was crying. And so the LRA threw her baby sister against a tree to kill her to make her stop crying. And so she was drawing, she was with Jeremy and they were drawing and um, so she drew her parents and she drew like the hut on fire and then we were done. And then, and then we said, is there anything else you want to draw? And she stopped and she said, yeah, yeah, there's one more thing I want to draw. And so she drew her baby sister being killed by, you know, beside the tree, which she did that because that was in her head and she needed to get it out. And had she not had the opportunity to draw, then she may not have spoken that out loud, which is so important for them to be able to speak their pain out loud. Because if they don't, then it's just trapped inside of their head and their heart. What does the fact that art therapy is so powerful say about the role of stories and how it has the ability to change our story? Yeah, that's a great question. Part of it is getting it out of your heart. Because a lot of times, so I look at trauma as it's memories frozen in time or it's your story kind of frozen inside of you. And being able to draw that is this medium where 
Um, it releases that pain in a different way. Um, we spoke last week at a conference and we actually had the participants or, or those in the audience um, draw part of their story, not knowing you know, what they'd experienced. And there was a lady that came up afterwards and she was just weeping because something had triggered. And so we talked about it and what she kept saying was, I knew that that was really painful, but I had never seen it before. Hmm. Wow. And so when she drew for her, when she was a child, she was in foster care, foster care, foster care, all of these different homes and pain that had happened kind of in different homes. And, and when she saw all of that on paper, something triggered in her, th- that just released so much pain because it's, it's visual. Um, and it's kind of similar when, when um, the children orphaned by war and the rescue child soldiers that we work with, whenever they um, write poetry or they write their songs about being in captivity or being rescued or being able to go to school again or just, you know, their life being saved. When, when they do that or they, or they um, act it out in a drama, it, it's this creative way that they can release their pain. And it's safe, you know, it's a safer way, especially for a child to express their pain and their trauma than it would be if they just sat down with an adult and had to kind of tell them what had happened. Would you say that art therapy is as effective for adults as it is for children? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think it's more natural for a child. Why? Well, Picasso has this great, just, I can't remember what it is. It's something like, basically we're all artists until we grow up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Yep. (laughs) So you think about a child, they just draw. I mean, they just do. You don't have a child that says, oh, I'm really, you know, I don't know how to do that. And they, you know, as we get older is when you start to hear that. You start to hear them say, I'm not really good or, you know, I don't really know how to do that. But when you have a two or three-year-old, it doesn't matter. They're going to draw because it's just a natural, kind of like play. Play is their language. Well, you don't have to teach a kid how to use crayons. Right. You just put crayons in front of them. And that's why I was actually, that's why I asked that question earlier because I was curious if you have to teach these kids how to draw. In America, it's instinctive. Kids mm-hmm. just know like, oh, paper, this makes a mark. We're, we're like born to create, right? Exactly. Um, and it's actually the growing up part that starts scaring us and we're like, oh, what are people going to think about this? Mm-hmm. Or we start to try to draw something instead of just draw what we want to draw. Whatever is in my, our mind, we just draw. Again, two and three and four-year-olds, they just draw. They don't really care if they get outside or inside the lines until an adult says, oh, uh, maybe you should try to stay inside the lines, but they don't care. It's fascinating. So what about all the new the new trends with all the adult coloring books? Like, is that like, so, like I know it's supposed to calm you. I don't know. Do they work? They're <laughs> yeah. all using headlines to sell them like stress-free. I know. <laughs> well, in the art therapy world, you'll hear people get really um, cautious because it's, like therapy and counseling has its own. Um, it's different than an outlet. It's different. I mean, it's clinical. Sure. But when you think of just just drawing, I think sometimes it's that your mind turns off for a little bit and you're just focusing on uh, colors. And um, yeah, and the cool thing about the the workbooks is that it's just all there for you. So you just like color. I remember when I was 
this was years ago when I wanted to calm myself down. Um, when I was going through a really, really anxious time, I would go around my house and I would touch up the paint. Because I just, you don't have to think about anything. You're just like stroking. It's kind of the stroke, the rhythmic nature of it. It's soothing. Interesting. Let's go back to the moment where you came home from Africa and you said, I can't not do this. I can't not do something. Were you overwhelmed at that point? Oh, so overwhelmed. Tell us what you were feeling and tell us how you got to the point where you realized, I just got to figure out what my next step is. Because I think there's a lot of people listening to this who have been in that situation. Again, because I hear that phrase a lot. They discover this thing. There's this newly discovered passion and they, they go, oh my gosh, I, I can't not do this. But just because they feel like they can't not do something doesn't mean the path is super clear. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that's what it felt like for you. Yeah. I mean, I didn't have nonprofit experience. I didn't have business experience. Um, I'm a psychologist. You know, I didn't have this three-year, five-year plan. I don't know what we're doing. I just know something's got to be done. And we didn't have any money. I mean, I was deeply in debt at that point. So we had a couple people tithing every month. And so that was helpful. Um, But I think going back to your your question, uh, overwhelmed, yes, because I knew... I felt this this calling, this push toward you have to do something and figuring out what that looked like um, was sometimes even more overwhelming because it didn't look clear. So what I did is I just put one foot in front of the other and I would meet with people who I felt like knew more than I did. Um, I would meet with people who founded nonprofits, people who were presidents of nonprofits what did you do? How did you do that? What steps would you recommend that I took? What shouldn't I do? Um, and I think in the very beginning, my passion was bigger than my wisdom. So I just, I just did it. And in a way, it got the ball rolling. And so eventually my wisdom caught up with my passion. Thank the Lord. Um, and I will say in those beginning years, I remember... My mentality was children are dying. We have to be done. Something has to be done. So you need to get on board or get out of my way. And my parents will even say now, like in the beginning, they weren't fans at all. Like I'm going into war zones. I'm supposed to be in having my private practice as a psychologist. And all of a sudden I want to go into war zones. So they did not support, you know, they didn't support this crazy girl doing this crazy thing. But they say now they realize that they had to get on board or get out of my way. That's what their words are. And so they got on board. So now you'll see them um, running exile tables and they sponsor kids. And they, my dad talks to everybody about, do you know about this? You know, do you know why a child soldier is? You need to know about this. <laughs> and he'll sit them down and he'll tell them about it, about the war. And, um, but in the beginning, I, I, it was kind of like I was a bulldozer and... I realized that if you want people to to really see the vision, you need to value them. And when you value your team, then they are going to just respect you and respect the mission and the vision and catch the vision. Um, But yeah, I think a lot of it was just putting one foot in front of the next, you know, just kind of step by step and figuring it out along the way and not giving up, learning from your mistakes. 
Yeah, I think it'll, um, from the outside looking in, a lot of people look at people like you and be like, "Oh, she's, you know, she's the founder of this amazing creative nonprofit," and they see all the amazing work that you're doing, um, and they hear the story of how it all began. It's like, oh, wow, so she just took a trip and saw this need and was like, just started up her little organization, and next thing you know, she's changing the world. And they miss out on that, the middle part of your story of all the hard work and the long nights of like, I have no idea what I'm doing and I don't know what I'm supposed to do next and probably some pain and some tears and like some frustration. Why aren't people, why do they seem so apathetic? Why don't they care more? Um, I just, you know, I want, I just, I hope people are listening to this reminded that if there's this thing that they feel like they can't not do, but they just feel stuck and they don't know what to do next. Maybe they're inspired by your story to just take a next step, whatever that is go talk to someone who might be able to help them figure out what that next step is. That even though the path isn't clear, it doesn't mean they're wrong and that they should not, they can't not do that thing, you know? Totally. Yeah, I think there's such wisdom in learning from your mistakes. Like knowing, okay, I did that. That wasn't the best thing. That was actually (laughs) really stupid. And so you learn and so you don't do it that way the next time. And really, really listening, especially um, like for us, we, all of the, all of the programs on the ground in Uganda or in Congo are run by local leaders. So there are no Americans on the ground. Um, so a huge part of that, those beginning stages were sitting with those who were experts in their own culture and listening and learning. And so there's so much value in just listening and learning. Is there something that you wish you would have done differently early on that you can think of? One thing I would definitely recommend for those starting organizations or startups or whatever that is, is... You have a lot of passion in the very beginning. And if you don't um, kind of filter that a little bit, then it's easy just to pour yourself out in your dry and then it's not sustainable. Uh, I think that's why mentors are so, so important. And counseling, of course, I'm a big, you know, I'm gonna tell people to go to counseling just because I think it's so important. Even for Matthew and I, you know, we're really dedicated to that just so that we can lead from a place of wholeness rather than a place of burnout and brokenness because then the kids will end up suffering overseas. I loved meeting and having this conversation with Bethany so much that we continued talking for another whole hour about how the story community can get involved in the work of Exile International. I also invited her to come share about the role art therapy can play in our lives on stage at Story next month. And I was absolutely thrilled when she let us know that she had rearranged her schedule to be able to make it possible. We're working on something that is going to be transformative for those in attendance. You just have to be there to experience it. But before we wrapped up in the recorded portion of our time together, I wanted to ask a final question or two that might serve as a warning to those of us who choose not to address trauma. Her answer was beautiful. If we don't deal with the trauma in our story as creators, how is that going to impact our creative process? Well, I think what happens is um, trauma just freezes us. So if you're not a creative and you're an accountant, it, it freezes you. If you are a creative, it's going to freeze your creativity because you're trapped in your own woundedness and um, that pain is inside. So when we tell our story to someone we trust, the more our heart can be healed. And when we keep our pain inside, then our pain just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so we become less and less ourselves. So if who we are are these creative individuals, then we can't be our true self 
whenever we have pain or secrets, especially secrets trapped inside. So when we talk about those secrets and we talk about that pain, our true selves, you, you just find yourself again. You start to become truly who you are because there's freedom on the other side of healing. And you, you can't heal and hide really at the same time. And I think sometimes our natural reaction is just to hide our secrets and our pain. And when we experience healing, then there's freedom that comes on the other side of that. And especially creativity. Like we just kind of blossom, you know? So this is why Taylor Swift writes so many songs about breakups. I don't know. Is that, that art therapy in action? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. It Maybe. is. I mean, I kind of <laughs> is. I think song, a lot of songwriters do that. She's not the only one. A lot of authors too. I mean, <laughs> yeah. there's authors I can think of that I've heard other writer friends kind of, you know, poke fingers at and joke around a little. They give them a hard time because they're just like, oh, he just went through another life crisis or she just went through some more pain. Yeah. Like, now we know what our next book is going to be about. Yeah. And it's that situation where you're writing about it or you're singing about it. But if you spend your entire career constantly in that place and you never heal from it, is it really helping? You know? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, some of the, I think the greatest art pieces have been created out of pain. The, some of the best songs have been written out of pain. Um, so, so in my book, it, every chapter ends with, uh, a blog post or a journal entry and all of those it was my creative writing of processing the pain that I was experiencing the first maybe three to four to five years and that was how I dealt with it all I would just write and I would write and I would write at it and I was in like this deep deep place of pain and I think if I had to go back and write like that again it wouldn't come because you, you can't really recreate that deep pain that you've experienced. Um, so I'm so glad that I wrote during those first few years because I can't recapture that feeling of, I just sat with a boy who was forced to kill his parents. I'll never be able to experience that first again. So all of that came out of that, of the pain that I was experiencing. Well, I think you're proof of the gift that art is to the world and why art is so powerful. Because when you ask a child who is reliving this trauma to create a piece of art. His, his creative process of making that piece of art is a gift to himself or herself because of the role that that process is playing in their healing. But it's also a gift to the world because we get to look at the art they created and understand the power that it had. And it means and says something to us too mm -hmm. about our story and maybe the role that we play in that kid's story. Mm -hmm. um, and it reminds me of, of just creators in general when we make art from a deep place, a personal place, of a meaningful place. That art is for both us and the audience that we're hoping to reach with it. And it plays a role in both of those people's stories, mm -hmm. ours and theirs. So I, I love what you're doing. I think it's incredible. And you know, I, it would, anything that I can do to try to rally the creative community in general to just get behind your work not just to develop an awareness of it, but how we can inspire them just to get involved and help champion on what you're doing. It would be a huge pleasure. Thanks for that. You have a mic in front of you. It's connected to a few thousand of them. What would you say to them? Wow. I would just invite you to step into these kids' stories, really. Um, I mean, I get the privilege of sitting with them, and they're just remarkable. So, um, of course, go to our website, exileinternational.org. Um, we're all over social media, so find us there. Email us, info at exileinternational.org. If you have creative ideas about getting involved, um, we'd love to hear them and invite you really into, into what we do. Yeah. 
Awesome. As always, thank you so much for tuning in to the Story Podcast. Don't miss Bethany and a whole list of other incredible presenters on stage at Story 2017. Again, you can go to story2017.com to learn more. If you come, you're going to be learning from an amazing list of people from incredible creative companies. We have speakers coming in this year who have worked or is currently doing work for companies like Pixar, Disney Imagineering, Cirque du Soleil, Marvel, Pinterest, a ton of incredible freelance artists. It really is an amazing lineup. And don't forget, ticket prices go up by $100 on September 1st. And you can also register with the discount code WeAreStory. Again, that's no spaces, WeAreStory, for an additional $100 off. That code also expires on September 1st. I cannot wait to see you guys there. Until then, keep telling stories. They're magical. They help others reimagine what could be. The world needs them. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced by Harris III. It was mixed by Chad Michael Snavely and music was written by Aaron Farmer. The Story Podcast is a production of Astoria Collective. Thank you for listening.